All right. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Pocket Theology. I am Martin here with my good buddy, Jason. Jason, why don't you greet the people? I am Groot. I hated that. I came up with a really more creative. creative. I came up with a really creative one later, though. So I'm really excited about it. I believe you. I'm just going to do it. It's howdy. Oh my gosh, I forgot what it was. Wow. This is really disappointing. And I'm leaving it in because everyone needs to be disappointed in you with me. Good. I'll remember it at some point and I'll probably just, you know, shout it out. Just blurt it out. Cool. Okay. uh, This week, we are going to be talking about a project that Jason did for one of his classes recently, uh, where he was going through Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. So we've got a couple questions that we want to ask Jason about that. But the best thing to do when you're talking about any passage is to read the passage. So, Jason, do you have that pulled up for us? Yep, I got it in the NIV, which is as good as any. I prefer the NASB. I actually do, too, for personal study, but this is no, fine. It's, it is the only inspired word of God. Stop. Anyway, Isaiah 11, starting in verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, nor will he decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, and with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them along. The cow will feed the bear and the young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near a cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all of my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a beautiful passage, Jason. Thank you for sharing this. It is an absolutely wonderful, amazing passage, as much of Isaiah is. And gives a really beautiful picture of what life is going to be like one day. Which I guess is what we're talking about the rest of this time, right? Exactly. So, speaking of Isaiah, who is this guy? And did he write this? Yeah. Um, So, Isaiah of Jerusalem, as you will often hear him referred to, or just the prophet Isaiah, is a dude who lived a couple centuries before the Babylonian captivity in and around Jerusalem, he was related to either the royal family or advisors to the royal family. Honestly, I can't recall which off the top of my head. Um, but he was a prophet who spoke pretty scathingly against the people of his time and also promised redemption, or at least that's the traditional view. So the traditional view of this book is this one guy, Isaiah of Jerusalem, wrote the whole thing. 
or wrote part of it, spoke part of it, and then it was compiled either at the end of his life or shortly after he died. But he was the ultimate author of all of it, would be the gist of it. And parts of this book of Isaiah, which is very, very, very long, I don't, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but Martin, would I be correct in saying that this is the longest book in the prophets? It feels like it. It's real close if it's, I'm not sure word count wise, but it's real close if it's not the longest. But they would say, our traditional view would say that he wrote part of this book early in his life. Then we have a big chunk of time where he's not, he's writing and producing things, but we don't have any of it. And then at the end of his life, under the reign of an evil, an evil king, I believe it was Manasseh, uh, he didn't write anything because he was unable to, because worshipers of Yahweh were being persecuted by this evil king. And he was giving sermons, and somebody was either writing them down for him and saving them, or that they were reciting them, recording them from memory later on after he had passed away. And that these end up getting slammed together to create the book of Isaiah. That's a traditional view of the book. So Isaiah is the third longest prophet behind Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Huh. Okay. It just feels significantly longer. It feels very, it's very hard to chew through. And it's very, it's, it's kind of the revelation of the Old Testament. It's just hard to deal with. It takes a lot to read through it. It's um, literally like reading somebody tell you a story, but like they don't really know what the story is. It is kind of all over the place. It jumps back and forth, which is relevant to the other two views, because I said the traditional view. And I will say right now, and I'll explain why in a minute. I lean towards the traditional view pretty strongly. I won't say I'm 100% certain I'm right, because it's not my area of expertise to determine authorship of ancient documents. It's just not something I study, uh, at least not a lot. There's some tangential study you just have to do as a pastor they teach you a little bit in seminary but not my area of expertise uh the what i'll call the old liberal view is that three separate people wrote isaiah some people will say two but really the more popular version is three so chapters 1 through 39 were written by isaiah of jerusalem chapters 40 through 54 were written by some unnamed prophet who we've nicknamed deutero isaiah which is really creative uh, literally just means second Isaiah. Isaiah of Jerusalem will be, will, uh, be referred to as proto-Isaiah, you know, first Isaiah. And then chapters 55 through 65, the end of the book, is written by trito-Isaiah or third Isaiah. And somebody just, somebody or a group of somebodies just combine their works after their life. That was the dominant view for a really long time. It's pretty simple, so I'll leave it there. Uh, the gist of the reasoning for this is that the imagery in the book changes pretty radically from one section to another, and that the emphasis of the oracles, the individual passages, changes. So some of them are super, super, super gloomy and aggressive and basically saying, like, you guys are horrible, God's going to punish you, while other passages are super hopeful. Some of them are messianic, and it just doesn't feel like something written by one person. The issue with this three-part division is that first chunk of Isaiah, for example, has all sorts of different imagery in it and all sorts of different emphases in it. So if you're going to say it has multiple authors, it probably doesn't divide that cleanly into, well, the first chunk was written by the first guy, the second chunk was written by the second guy, and the third chunk was written by the third guy. So that brings us to the modern view, which is basically that, and 
almost every interpreter is going to have a different number here. Some number of prophets, including Isaiah of Jerusalem, took this collection of works and continually edited it and added their own oracles to it throughout time. So Isaiah of Jerusalem wrote the original book, but then over time, people added to it until we got the modern book of Isaiah. So it would have began several centuries before the Babylonian captivity, and it would have been completed actually after people returned from the captivity. But it's not as clean as books one through 39 were original and the other parts aren't. This view would say, for example, my passage, Isaiah 11, was probably written later, but was laced into a concentrated chunk of Isaiah of Jerusalem's teachings. So it's just kind of tied in there. Whereas if you get later on in the book, you get less and less original teachings and more and more added stuff. So I lean pretty hard into traditional authorship just because we've never found a copy of Isaiah that doesn't very closely correspond to the version of Isaiah we have today. So there's no hard evidence that these hypotheses are correct. They're based on literary critique, basically saying these don't read like it was written by a single person. But if this book really was written by Isaiah in his, say, his 40s, and then another chunk was written in his 60s or 70s, I mean, my writing style has changed dramatically and my speaking style has changed dramatically in just like seven years. I can't imagine how much it'll change over the course of 20, 30 or 40 years. So it's entirely possible it's the same person. He's just writing at different periods. Also, that the emphases would change if God gives him a cluster of revelations and he writes them and prophesies them, teaches them. And then many years later, God returns to him again and gives him a new message. Well, God can certainly do that, and that would account for part of why he sounds so different in addition to the writing style or speaking style changes. And also, I can tell you that at any given point in a preacher's life, and prophets were to some extent preachers, you have hobby references, passages that you love alluding to. One of mine right now is John 17, but it hasn't always been. Revelation 13 is another one that I've loved referring to at times in the past, but right now I'm not referencing it much. It's just not on my mind as much. Or people will have hobby illustrations that they love to point to. So if Isaiah is writing this book at two or three different points in his life, and then later on it's all put together, of course he's going to have different illustrations or different allusions to other books of the Old Testament that he's referring to because he's older and his thoughts have changed and the way he's communicated has changed. So I hold to traditional authorship. Ultimately, I don't think it matters because Jesus and his followers refer to Isaiah as authoritative. They reference it, they quote it, they treat it as an authoritative text. So however we got the book of Isaiah, Jesus and his apostles in no uncertain terms think it's authoritative. So, so do I, and I don't really care that much where it came from. So I, of course, also have to put my two cents in on this because I've also done quite a bit of looking at authorship of Isaiah because believe it or not, guys, if you go to Bible college or seminary, or even if you go to church long enough, you hear a lot about Isaiah. So I've written about three projects on Isaiah, all of which I come to the exact same conclusion on authorship. And that is nobody has a real, uh, a real defense for a two or three author or multi-author theory. So uh, the best one that I've heard is twofold. The first part is uh, the vocabulary, which Jason mentioned, uh, of which I always tell people, 
I hope that he learned more words as he got older. I hope that I learn more words as I get older. Yeah. If um, if his vocab gets smaller as he gets older, then a chunk of this book was written by like Isaiah with dementia. And I don't want to have to deal with that. So I really hope his vocabulary has improved over time. That's the best dementia Isaiah. But um, so that's right part, after Deutero Isaiah. Yeah. So the first part is vocabulary, which I don't have a problem with different vocabulary. I would I would hope that he learns more words. The only real part to it that kind of like sketches me out is Hebrew has a very limited vocabulary. If you're using a different sort of vocabulary in a language with very limited vocabulary. And when I say very limited, I mean very limited. Some words have like three or four completely different definitions from each other. And you have to use context to figure out which one is which. I would hope that he's learned more words, that he uses them as he understands them better. The second part is Isaiah talks about stuff that he should have no idea about what's going on because it's so far in the future. And I just kind of like look at people. Like times I look at someone and I go, did you just say that? And that's how I feel about this argument. Like we've claimed as Christians that a man could be born without a man having sex with a woman right? We've claimed that water could be turned into wine. We've claimed that a man could ask bears to come out of woods and maul children. What a good story. Right? We've claimed that people can come back from the dead. But one guy seeing just a little bit further into the future than he should, that's that's out, that's out of the question. That's impossible. So, I don't think that there's enough reason to support anything besides a traditional view. And you'll get this kind of argument that last one Martin mentioned in all sorts of books. Daniel comes to mind where people will say, well, it predicts things in the future way too accurately to be as old as Christians and Jews say it is. And my response to that is Christians and Jews say there's an all powerful God that can do anything he wants. And if he wants to tell somebody what's going to happen in the future. Okay. Like he clearly at, at, in the person of Jesus, God clearly understood part, at least part of the future, despite having emptied himself, as Paul said, because he knew he was going to die on a cross. So why, why is this an issue? And the answer is it's not. It shouldn't be an issue for a Christian. If you're a non-believer, you have no reason to believe that those prophecies are real. You know, they must have been faked later. But if you're a believer, this should not be an issue for you. Yeah, so that's my not even my functioning theory. It's functioned. It's set for me. Like I'm much more firm on this stance than Jason is. So, but as we continue, let's ask this question here, Jason, what should we understand? What kind of things do we need to know to understand this passage better? Yeah. So the big one is context. Uh, regardless of what stance you're going to take on, is this proto-Isaiah, is this a later author, whatever, the book of Isaiah is addressed to people who are at various points, to a people group rather, that are at various points in the next several centuries going to be pre-punishment, pre-exile, and in grave sin. They're disobeying God in numerous ways. 
they're mistreating the poor, they're rejecting God's law, they're not worshiping him properly, all sorts of things. They have poor leadership that's doing the same, teaching them to do that. They're worshiping other gods. And God is promising punishment to those people. Later on, this people group will be in exile. There's going to be a foreign nation that's going to come in and attack them. And actually, two different groups is going to attack. The nation will has been split, and the northern part's going to be taken away by the Assyrians, and the southern part's going to be taken away by the Babylonians. The Babylonians are going to come and take the southern kingdom, which was slightly more faithful, lead them off into what is functionally slavery. Uh, not quite as we think of slavery today, but not too dissimilar. And they're going to be in the process of repenting and returning to God and following his ways faithfully. But they are currently being punished for their past sins while they're kind of being purified, really. And then this same group of people is going to, after 70 or so years, return, or at least a chunk of them is going to return to their native land. And they've been partially restored, but they're still under the thumb of a powerful empire. This time it's the Persians. They still have neighbors that really don't like them and would rather see them dead than have to live next to them. They're going to face political opposition, and at times they're going to face military opposition. And they're kind of looking at God and going, God, we repented, and we have all these promises from you that when we repent that you'll restore us. Why the heck haven't you restored us yet? And Isaiah is going to kind of address all three groups. He's going to kind of talk to all three of those situations. This specific passage can apply to the second or third group. But I think it also offers hope for the first group. Hey, guys, you're going to get punished, but don't worry. God's going to take care of you eventually. It kind of can speak to any of the three because it's a promise of restoration. One day, I am going to raise up a king from the Davidic line a descendant of King David. That's what that phrase, a root from the stump of Jesse means. Jesse is David's father. And the stump of Jesse is a way of referring to the family of David, which seems to be dead after the invasion of the Babylonians, because we don't have any kings anymore. They've all been killed or they've been, you know, taken away into kind of this political slavery. So they're part of the king's court, but they have no political power anymore just a thing the Babylonians like to do with a lot of the kings they conquered. So basically this, this family line is inert. We have no king. And even the ones that are still alive, like they're not in the kingship. They may be around. One of them becomes a governor for a while, but they're not kings. And God's promising, I'm going to take this line, which I've shown special favor to and made promises to, and I'm going to restore them. And while I do that, I'm going to restore your whole nation. And in fact, I'm going to make it even better than it used to be, because I'm not only going to restore your political and military power, I'm going to make it so no one even makes war in the vicinity of my holy city. I'm going to make it so even animals refuse to kill one another because the glory of the Lord has filled the entire earth. So there'll be no more death. That sounds like more than just a political promise. This is a this is an end times, an eschatological promise that one day I'm going to raise up a new Davidic king and the end goal of his reign, the thing that he's going to ultimately accomplish is creating a reality where there is no war, no pain, no disease, no death, no famine, no strife. He's going to create utopia. So placing yourself in the situation of being an ancient Jew, and you're either awaiting punishment, you're currently being punished, or you've gotten past the bad part of punishment, but you're still not fully restored. God's saying, don't worry, things get better. 
That's the main gist of the passage. The biggest thing that you have to understand is these people are hurting and they're being comforted saying, hey, don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. There's a few other little details in here that need to be teased out. Uh, they can just kind of highlight. I mean, you already get the gist of the passage, but this will kind of highlight a little bit what they're waiting for. One is the Davidic covenant. Martin, what's the Davidic covenant? Well, a covenant is a promise between two individuals. This would specifically refer to the one God makes with David, which is that one of his offspring will sit on the throne again in a heavenly way, kind of. It's like not mentioned, but it's implied. Yeah, it's implied later because of later things that happen. The initial promise is just your descendants will sit on the throne forever. It's in 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17, 2 Chronicles 6. So it's repeated over and over again. Your descendants are going to sit on the throne of Judah forever. The issue is during the Babylonian captivity, there's no one on the throne of Judah. So is God a liar? Obviously, it seems to those people that he is, that he is or that his prophets are. Maybe he never really said that and the prophets just lied to us. God's ultimate fulfillment as a Christian, this is actually an idea that develops within Judaism, that one day there would be a Messiah. That term just means anointed or chosen individual. And it's actually used to refer to a lot of people in the Old Testament, but there'd be one like mega Messiah, a super Messiah that's going to come. He's going to be a descendant of David and he's going to rule over the people forever. So their solution to this problem is, yes, God said a descendant of David would sit on the throne forever. But he never said that there would never be any breaks and we sinned and we're punished. And part of the punishment is David's line had to take a break from being king. But there'd be a super king one day that's going to come along and sit on the throne forever. He's not going to die. This messianic expectation is why we see people in the Gospels when Jesus comes along and starts doing crazy, miraculous things and calling himself the Messiah and other people call himself the Messiah or call Jesus the Messiah why people are coming to him and trying to force him to become king early in his ministry. Cause they're going, Oh, you, you're a descendant of David and you're doing crazy miracle things. And people are calling you the Messiah, which means your job is to be our King, kick out the oppressors and rule over a physical kingdom on earth forever and ever and ever. That's their expectation from passages like Isaiah 11. My favorite example of this is in John chapter four five when jesus feeds thousands of people and it's right before he does the i am the bread of life statement right and the people come around and they find him the second time and they said jesus be our king and like we kind of just like look over it because we know what's coming which makes it really hard to read it like without expectations or without without some kind of understanding um but we look at it and we go, it's, I am the bread of life. He gave them bread and now he tells them that he's the bread. And so we just kind of like jump over it. But you can see it really clearly. The people literally shouted to Jesus, be our king. And he was like, nah, fam, that ain't for me. I'm a dip. Mm -hmm. And he's not necessarily turning down kingship because God embraces the fact that he's king over and over and over again in scripture but he's denying their idea of kingship that you're going to be a political king 
that will never, ever, ever die, that will conquer your enemies through hatred and violence and war. And he's saying, no, I'm going to be the kind of king that is king forever and ever because he died and resurrected and thus defeated death, who conquers his enemies through love and service and who is just and will eventually judge the wicked, but only after giving them ample opportunity to repent. He's denying their version of kingship. In this passage, this Messiah is described as being mighty and as judging with righteousness, not by what his ears hear, what his eyes see, but by righteousness, delighting in fear of the Lord. And these sorts of pictures of the Messiah are going to be very common throughout the Old Testament and ones that are embodied within the ministry of Jesus. I don't think we need to go too into detail on them because they're pretty self-explanatory, but they do highlight who Jesus is, what kind of savior is being promised. And notice throughout Isaiah 11, while he is depicted as striking the earth with the rod of his mouth, which is prophetic language for judgment, he will judge the earth. He's never depicted leading armies. He's never depicted waging wars against the political enemies of Israel. He's depicted ruling over Israel, enforcing an era of peace, and judging those who deserve judgment, as well as rallying. If you continue reading on past the, the section where we stopped in verse nine, you read the rest of the chapter. He rallies not only the Israelites who are scattered, but also the Gentiles to him. So he opens up access to the kingdom of God, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, which is what we see Jesus doing in his own ministry with conversations in, in the Decapolis and with the Syrophoenician woman, which you can just Google on your own time if you aren't familiar with those stories. But also after he dies through his church with stories like the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch, which we talked about last week, uh, stories like Cornelius's household, which I think we also mentioned last week, uh, and the opening up of the church in Europe through the baptism into the Trinity in Ephesus of some people who were evangelized originally by John's disciples. Again, you can look that up. Just look up Paul in Ephesus Acts and you'll find the story. Uh, all of these are examples of Jesus or his church on his behalf, opening up access to the gospel, to the kingdom, to Gentiles, which is exactly what Isaiah 11 promises. So I had a little bit here I was going to get into on Jewish eschatological hope. The gist of it is this. Jewish people were expecting a literal kingdom on earth, and they didn't necessarily think that everyone who was still alive was going to be a part of it. Most of the Jews, at least by the time the Babylonian captivity was over, thought there was going to be a physical resurrection of the righteous dead. So if you died and you were a follower of Yahweh, then you would be given a new body and live forever on earth. And if you were not a follower of Yahweh, you would still be resurrected but judged. Even by the time of Jesus, not all Jews think that, like the Sadducees are going to deny a physical resurrection. They thought only the soul was eternal, which is kind of a Greek idea. But most Jews are going to believe in a physical resurrection at that point. Note that Isaiah doesn't actually mention a physical resurrection explicitly. You can read it into this passage pretty easily, especially as a Christian. You can look back at it and see where a resurrection would fit here. But it's not explicitly mentioned like it is in, say, like Daniel chapter 12. So that's also another reason, by the way, why I think that this is written really early, because if it's written after Daniel chapter 12, which I'm also going to take an early date on and say it's written during the Babylonian captivity, there's an idea of resurrection that's very popular in Judaism, and it doesn't make sense for Isaiah to not mention it here. But that's just an extra aside. 
Yeah. So last thing, what is the author's intended meaning here then, Jason? Yeah, and we, we already kind of touched on it, but just to repeat it again, make it explicit. There will one day be another Davidic king, a descendant of David, who will sit on the throne of Judah, open up membership in the kingdom, not only to the Judahites, but also to the Gentiles, to the lost Israelites, to anyone. And when he rules, when his rule has fully come about, there will be no violence, not only between humans, but there will even be no violence between animals. All of creation will be at peace. And that idea, this idea of God reigns, and when his reign is fully realized and everyone is fully obedient to him, the whole earth will be at peace. The whole earth will have shalom, which doesn't only mean peace, but it means wholeness. Everything will be as it should be is a really good way to think about it. This idea is core, not only to the Christian message, but to the Jewish message before it. When God is in control, things are whole. They function as they should. So the promise of Isaiah 11, which is still heartwarming and hopeful today, is despite everything that is happening to you, one day God will place a king who we know to be Jesus over his people, will fully realize his rule, and all things will be as they should. And there will be no more crying or mourning or tears or pain, to paraphrase Revelation. So that's that's the point of the passage. One day, things are going to be the way they were supposed to be, the way that they were in the garden. And Jesus is going to be our king, and he's going to rule over us, and we will have utopia. All right. Well, thank you, Jason. Like we said, it's a beautiful passage, beautiful meaning to it, even. Uh, we want to thank you guys for listening. We want to really say thank you, because we know sometimes that we're not the most interesting to listen to. But... Uh, at least Jason is, you know. So thank you guys. If you appreciate us, leave us five stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts um, or send us $5. And if you have any questions that you want to see us cover, if you have something that, you know, maybe your pastor doesn't feel equipped to answer or someone's asked you as a leader and you just don't know what to do about it. Go ahead and send it to us. You can email us at realpockettheology at gmail.com, or you can message me or Jason, uh, and we would love to cover it. So thank you guys again, and we will look forward to having you with us next week.